0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Segal Network, nachumsegal.com, and on the NSN app. And it is 40 days. That's four zero days until Election Day on November 3rd. Uh, That's uh, five weeks and uh, five days. And uh, it could not get more interesting politically. Just when we thought that we had seen everything, just when we thought that things were kind of locked in, that we were in cruise control, that the country is sufficiently polarized, that everybody had gone to their bunkers and we were going to fight it over over the last few bits of undecided voters that are out there. And kind of the die is cast, Biden in the lead, Democrats going to poise to hold the House, potentially take the Senate, and we have not the October surprise, but the September surprise, Uh, particularly for those of us uh, who were in the news cocoon, if you will, of Rosh Hashanah, and the fact that we were uh, blissfully unaware of the tumult and torment going on in the political world with the death of judge justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, an extraordinarily extraordinary justice an extraordinary life uh, no matter what your politics no matter what your political leanings it is Important to acknowledge the incredible accomplishment of Justice Ginsburg and what she was able to do to overcome coming into the legal stardom in a time where women were essentially barred from success in the legal world barred from top law jobs, barred from the best clerkships. It is said that Judge Felix Frankfurter, famous Felix Frankfurter, uh, rejected her for a Supreme Court, uh, Court clerkship in his chambers because he just said it would be untenable, I don't know if that's the exact word, to have a woman working as a clerk. She was not offered any jobs by New York law firms, despite having graduated number one in her class in law school. And she took that in stride and uh, accomplished a tremendous amount with regard to apparently, uh, well, she argued six cases before the Supreme Court as a lawyer and won five of them. Incredible record, incredible record on the on the court. One that her colleagues acknowledged she had an incredible friendship with Antonin Scalia. Uh, widely reported, widely photographed, widely videoed, but it shows a, a kind of a different time where people could disagree without being disagreeable, and certainly that collegiality. Uh, hopefully is not lost in the Supreme Court, which seems to be the one institution in American life right now that seems to be, of the of three branches, that seems to be uh, able to withstand the partisan onslaught. But that might not actually happen given the circumstances of the replacement and the politics around that. And we will get to that in a second because it's the politics themselves are absolutely extraordinary. I do want to comment first and foremost on the milestone that has been passed of 200,000 Americans who have perished from the coronavirus. We don't actually know exactly what the numbers are because there's always discrepancies about who died from COVID and who didn't. But the one thing I could say, and I, I'm I'm willing to trust statistics because if you don't go along with the statistics, um, I'm essentially just making up your own facts. I'm just saying, you know, who died from corona as opposed to other pre-existing conditions and vice versa, but having been through COVID 19 myself having seen others as a emt and they say the it is a devastating virus and it is a it is a horrible thing to have to go through and for those who get sick and progresses um, because of their conditions no question in my mind that they suffer tremendously because of Corona and whatever conditions they have is, are incredibly exacerbated. But I'm not here to give a scientific discussion about that. I was just saying that we definitely have passed 200,000 deaths, which is just a mind-boggling number. It's a mind-boggling number. 200,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus, and this is inside essentially six months. Wow. Wow. And the unfortunate thing right now is that we have so much in the way of politics that have infected, and I'm going to use that word because I, I think that's important, have infected the science. And everything has become this tug of war between people who depending on your political proclivities. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Shut down. Don't shut down. Have school. Don't have school. This was successful. This wasn't successful. And we saw at hearings yesterday in the Senate where the Senate uh, Health Committee I think it was our Labor, HHS, whatever that, uh, however they call it, had the head of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, Stephen Hahn, the head of the FDA, Anthony Fauci, and head of infectious disease. And they're sparring with the senators over basic questions, so much so that In an extraordinary move, they asked the they asked these scientists, these doctors, whether they have to, whether they would feel comfortable taking a drug, a vaccine. Sorry, that the FDA approved, and they all had to say yes. Now, I don't remember a time that you would think that if the FDA approved something, it wouldn't be safe, or wouldn't be, or we would assume that it's a political ploy in order to have the vaccine. But what we hear coming from different quarters of the country in different quarters of the politics is that this is all about politics. If this person tells me, we trust the politicians in a sense based on the team that we're on more than we trust the science and we trust the doctors. I will say this, if I'm sick or if a family member is sick and they have a disease or they have whatever it is, I don't consult Facebook and get a bunch of opinions from different people as to what they think I should do and what this person did. I don't read like product reviews and try and figure out if this person is trustworthy. I go to a doctor. Now, presumably, I've done some research on the doctor and I hope that that doctor is good and I hope they know what they're talking about. And I have a little bit of experience in the medical field, but not a tremendous amount. But it's the, the tearing down of expertise the dismissing of expertise, the just wholesale just, they don't know what they're talking about, but these people who agree with me politically, they probably know what they want to talk about better. I mean, let's just be clear here. There is no, I mean, yes, wearing a mask can make people uncomfortable. Yes, it can, for a long period of time, it can make people claustrophobic, but there is no question whatsoever, and nobody, there's no study whatsoever that has debunked this. That wearing a mask is anything but safer when it comes to an airborne disease. Now, what kind of mask, what kind of mask are you doing? It inflow, outflow. Okay, we can argue about that. But not wearing a mask is dangerous if you are afraid of getting coronavirus, and everybody should be afraid of that. The other thing, of course, is that. As the president said, well, young people don't get it. It doesn't go through. Well, young people do get it, and some young people do get sick because some of them do have preexisting conditions, and it does exist out there. And I'm not saying the president doesn't want to make a certain political reality and make it so, but at the same time, when you make these wholesale pronouncements about things that are contrary to what science says, Uh, and what the data is telling us, and we have data. We have six months of data so far, and we've learned a lot, and we continue to learn a lot. That's why it's called the novel coronavirus. We learn as we go, and yes, a lot of things that were said initially turned out not to be correct, and we pivot in order to do that. But we don't say, oh, it was perfect beforehand, and it's perfect now, and everything we've done has been perfect, because it's impossible to get everything right 100%. So there was an extraordinary exchange during that hearing yesterday between Fauci and Dr. Rand Paul, who's also a senator. He's an ophthalmologist. And I'm not dismissing of his medical expertise. But I will say, and I just anecdotally, sometimes as a Hudson member, you go to a call and there's a doctor there. um, And I'm not dismissing any doctors. But many times the doctor who might have a specialty that has nothing to do with anything the patient who is there is suffering, will admit and readily concede, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, adi- I'm going to try and help, but I have no experience in emergency medicine. And I have no, uh, I am not really much use for anybody that a lowly EMT like me probably has more experience in treating a emergency situation like this than, let's just say, a urologist or, and again, not to be dismissive, or an ophthalmologist for that matter. Uh, just because they don't have, haven't had that relevant experience in a very long time, possibly since medical school, possibly not at all. Uh, and Fauci is, and I'm not, this is not about one person. This is about an accumulation of four or five decades of experience and expertise in infectious disease and knowing what it is and listening and seeing the data. And Fauci readily admits that he is, has, that mistakes have been made, and that he has made mistakes, he himself. And that in the one extraordinary thing, Brand Paul was basically saying, well, why are you praising what happened in New York? New York has the highest death rate, et cetera. Let's take Sweden as a model. So first Fauci says to him, we'll take Sweden as a model. Sweden, compared to the United States, okay, it sounds good, but Sweden really can't be compared to the United States. It's a small country. The United States is a huge country. When you take Sweden compared to the other Scandinavian states, Sweden does not have a good record with regard to COVID nineteen. They have an extraordinarily high death rate, and but Rand Paul wasn't done. Then he said, talked about New York, and the reason that New York is doing well now is not because of Fauci and the other scientists said that they are now listening to the CDC guidance and things are and positivity rate is down because of that. He said because of herd immunity, and Fauci basically said, "Senator, you are not listening. Actually, you are not listening." If you believe that 22% is herd immunity, then you are alone in that opinion, and I thought that was quite extraordinary because that's kind of the thing: is we have this idea that somebody says something and it's out there, and and because they said it, we can quote them, and therefore it's a it's a legitimate opinion. I, I don't know that if you had a disease or if you had cancer, for example, you would go to see Red and Paul, who's an ophthalmologist. Now, I'm not saying he's not a smart guy, and I'm not saying he doesn't have informed opinions, but he is certainly not an expert in this situation. He's certainly not an expert in herd immunity. He's certainly not an expert in coronavirus. But yet he has dismissed Fauci and dismissed Redfield, and dismissed the other experts that we have. And if guess what? If we don't like these experts, then let's get new experts and get credentialed experts. But the idea that somehow that we should just dismiss all this expertise that we have within the U.S. government, which is actually quite incredible that we've accumulated. We have the best people. We have The CDC is the best public health organization in the world. It always has been. And somehow we have now thinking that we are going to Just throw it out because some politicians don't like what they're saying. It's troubling. It's troubling. And uh, I think it's as we pass 200,000 deaths, we have to acknowledge that. We're going to have to listen to science in order to get through this. Because ignoring it as kind of was done and declaring victory and spiking the football as was done in June and July has not worked because it's back. And it's back in a big way. Well, let's talk about... Let's talk about... Well, I want to get to the Ginsburg thing and I want to get to the state of the race. But one thing I do want to talk about is I I read, uh, and we didn't have a show last week, um, but celebrating the Abraham Accords, which was the peace between the United Arab Emirates and Israel and Bahrain... To Gulf countries, and yeah, there's a tendency to, oh, let's be dismissive, they're not matter, they don't really matter, and the Palestinians left out, and I see this whole thing from the left is that this really is not a real thing, and it doesn't really matter, and there's a, you know, there's a whole uh, whatever deal, F-35s, and... But let's take it in Washington Post op-ed from Aaron David Miller, who was an experienced peace negotiator for Democrats and Republicans, and... A guy with actual experience on the ground, sitting there year after year, day after day, month after month, trying to broker peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And, or Israel and the Arab countries, however you want to look at it, whatever peace in the Middle East is, because, of course, this whole misnomer of peace in the Middle East with all the things Syria doesn't, well, whatever. But I just want to read from his op ed because I thought it was quite incredible. These developments confounded the predictions of many in the peace process veterans, me included. I always believed normalized relations between Israel and neighboring Arab states would necessarily follow a resolution of the Israel-Palestinian dispute. So, recent events started me thinking about what we may have missed. Clearly, Trump and his advisors leveraged relationships with autocratic Arab leaders, and it paid off. The story, of course, is far from over. But I do want to say, okay, well, uh, this is me here. I'm skipping. Um, if talks about leaving Palestinians' national ambitions unfulfilled, that you won't get a lasting peace, which is probably true. I mean, but that's it. Okay, but three points that he makes of, of where essentially the conventional wisdom was entirely off on this and why Aaron David Miller thinks in itself this is an extraordinary event these Abraham Accords the status quo is unsustainable for decades a core assumption of many if not most American foreign policy thinkers has been that the israeli-palestinian conflict was a veritable powder keg that could blow at any time creating war and instability in the Arab world well guess what they managed to manage the situation in fact that is the that is a thing that a lot of Israelis have used over the over the years and meeting with Israeli politicians going to Israel, it's management of the conflict, not necessarily solving the conflict, because it's hard to solve a conflict when essentially, number one, Hamas rejects any resolution. Number two is the Palestinian Authority uh, didn't want to negotiate. They just wanted to continue this. Um, So that's one assumption, obviously, that the Trump uh, administration rejected, and Israel has done effectively. Number two, Israel will become a pariah. In 2014, Kerry warned if Israel didn't settle with the Palestinians, it could become an apartheid state. Many Israelis, including former Prime Minister Barak, reached the same same conclusion, as had Israel's foreign ministry in a confidential 2014 report. But in the intervening years, the opposite has happened. Israel's diplomatic gains have occurred largely on the watch of a prime minister who has mostly dropped the pretense of resolving the Israel-Palestinian conflict on terms any Palestinian leader could accept. Essentially, BB did, and he's been rewarded for this at the ballot box. Essentially, BB did, and he went around the world and just said, this is Israel. This is our country? Do you want to make peace with us? Do you want to deal with us? Do you want to have economic ties with us? And the Israeli standard of living has risen, and do you want to be a country like us? And a lot of countries in the developing world said yes. Yes, we want to embrace you. We actually do. Because they saw a... Robust, diversified economy, a free society—that they, that in many cases they want to emulate. Number three, this is uh, Aaron David Miller's third point: normalizing diplomatic relations is step two, and of course that was the whole conventional wisdom. Perhaps nowhere have veteran analysts and diplomats been more off the mark than in their predictions that Arab states would not normalize relations with Israel until there had been major progress on the Palestinian issue even though key Persian Gulf nations such as the UAE and Saudi Arabia were dealing quietly with Israel. Just this May, in an article on how Arab countries were making peace with Israel without the Palestinians, I still express doubts about the possibility of full-scale diplomatic relations. But the stars were aligning, a shared fear of Iran's Shia-dominated regime and violence from Sunni Muslim terrorist groups, combined with Israel's aid on security, technology and intelligence fields, and an increasing impatience with the Israel-Palestinian conflict set the stage for a thaw between Israel and largely Sunni Arab nations. With the advent of the Trump administration, with its pro-Israel and anti-Iran policies, its autocrat-friendly outreach and its willingness to sell the smaller Gulf monarchies advanced weapons added an incentive to move closer to the Israelis. And the point here is that countries act in their own best interest. The United States acts in its own best interest. Israel acts in its own best interest. The Gulf states are operating in their own best interest. I'm sure Arab states are going to follow in operating in their own best interest. I think that many Arab leaders have seen that they don't want their role in the world held hostage to a criminal, corrupt Palestinian authority that has proven itself entirely incapable of negotiating any end to this conflict. I shouldn't say just incapable, just entirely unwilling. And an uncompromising terrorist organization in Hamas that rules Gaza. And... Why would you leave yourself cut off from, from taking advantage of a, a strategic partner and a neighbor because of that? Yes, the historical animosities. Yes, the religious conflict. Yes, yes, I agree with all that. And we all thought it was be interminable, and maybe it is. And I don't think that we can leave the Palestinian issue uh entirely unresolved forever. However, normalization is possible, and it can happen, and it can be good, and it seems like it's working, at least for now. So let's see. And... This should be celebrated, not condemned by you see this rush on the left and even amongst Democrats to say, oh, it's a sham deal, it's bribery, it's this, that. Again, countries act in their own best self-interest. It's just read political science. It's it's one on one. They want to achieve certain aims. And for whatever reasons, and the reasons are are their own, and we can all speculate as to what they are and assume as to what they are, the UAE made a strategic decision that they are going to normalize their ties with Israel. And let's see what happens. But for Aaron David Miller to acknowledge, I think that is significant. And these assumptions that everybody had that nothing was possible until everything got settled. Well, it just shows how, how wrong sometimes the assumptions can be. Now let's talk about the Supreme Court. This is the big piece, and this is going to affect the election going in. We don't, we don't really know. We Number one, we don't have a pick, which is quite incredible. But of course, we got to take ourselves back to 2016 when Judge Anthony Scalia, uh, the friend of uh, Judge Ginsburg, passed away. During the election cycle. And. The. Mitch McConnell said he would not. Even give a hearing to any nomination. From President Barack Obama. And. Not only that. But you had Lindsey Graham. Who's now the chair of the Judiciary Committee. Said. That if the next president. If a nomination comes from. uh, Excuse me. If a nomination comes in a presidential year. I will not confirm a nominee. I don't have the words verbatim, but he did say over and over, use my words against me. Famous words for a politician to use, use my words against me, I'm sure. And he's actually in a, well, I don't say a tight race, but a surprisingly uh, close race uh, in South Carolina against a very well-funded Democrat, and we'll get to that when we do the Senate breakdown, hopefully uh, next week or the week after. Use my words against me. And the Republicans fell over themselves to say, well, we can't, you know, we we precedent, we can't go ahead. History, tradition, we can't confirm, let the voters decide. We can't confirm a justice. And Obama nominated Merrick Garland. Uh, and uh, I I Well-known, seemingly moderate centrist, if you will. And uh, the rest is history. He wasn't confirmed. So now you have the shoe of being on the other foot, although people say circumstances are different because the same party and this is a constitutional duty. Personally, I mean, my feeling here is that the Constitution says that the president should nominate a Supreme Court justice. And that the Senate should give a hearing. And I think that's what should have happened in 2016. And um, that's personally, I I mean, I think now politically, I think McConnell was really smart about it. Politically, obviously, he's advantageous. I think it worked for Trump and helped Trump. Supreme Court energizes evangelicals uh, in 2016, worked for Senate, picking up Senate seats. And I think politically it was good, but it was bad for the country. Now we have a situation where the Democrats say hypocrisy, et cetera. I I don't know what to say. I mean, my feeling here is the president's constitutional powers still go on. Now, can they go ahead and in the short timetable that there is get a nominee through is a different question than should they? And what I do think is that should the Republicans lose the Senate and lose the White House in a lame duck session, that would trouble me a little bit more. But now I don't, I'm not troubled by this at all. I don't see why you would not fulfill your constitutional duty to fill this seat. And it's not as if this is actually the balance of power in the court. If you want to go conservative or Republican versus Democrat appointees, uh, right now there are only three Democratic appointees on the court. There are five Republican appointees. I know they have this idea that John Roberts has begun far to the left. And, uh, well, I, I mean, it doesn't seem like it to me. Um, Supreme Court justices surprise people all the time with different decisions. But that's the big question. Now, politically, I think what you have, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski have said they oppose this. I don't see any other Republicans going along and not fulfilling their constitution. I don't see why you would not want to have this pick. I mean, this seems very clear that it's— it is what it is. I mean, this is <laughs> this is how this is how the country works. This is how the Constitution works. Um, but I would say that it's likely that two senators, like Martha McSally, who's way behind in Arizona, as well as Cory Gardner, who's way behind in Colorado, uh, probably acknowledge that they're not going to win their race by coming in behind this because this is not a position that most Americans are. In favor of. In fact, I think like 50% of Republicans don't want them to fill a seat as far as the polling is concerned. So, look, by next week, we'll have a nominee. I think it's premature that a lot of people have kind of gone up or down already on the nominee when it doesn't even exist, but we shall see. Isn't politics exciting these days? It's 40 days until Election Day, four zero days until Election Day. Uh, The other thing I want to give credit to Zoom for deplatforming uh, for not allowing a Palestinian terrorist and un- un- unapologetic Palestinian terrorist to speak at San Francisco State University on a Zoom platform. Leela Khaled, who is a still a member of the PFLP, a terrorist organization, she herself participated in terrorist acts, unrepentant. She was having an event on Zoom. They said it violated the pro- their policy. Good for them in turning the off button on her. That's it for this week here on Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.